Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, beginning episode 52 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So episode 52, there are 52 weeks in a year, which means this is the 52nd week that a podcast has been recorded by me. That's not a big deal if you're a podcaster that's been at it for a long time. I listen to podcasts there into the hundreds and two hundreds of episode numbers. But for someone like me that I have very, very good staying power and I can have good discipline, I don't always have good commitment, meaning I do all the things to make something happen and those last little things that need to be done, I struggle with. And, and actually in my life, some of those behaviors still remain. So I just had an amazing conversation with my editor sort of about where do we go from here? You know, I've talked many times in these episodes about time and how we structure it and how certain things become meaningful or not meaningful. And, you know, we're at a year. This is a big, this is a big, you know, a year. A year ago today, I, I had recorded one or two, I think, but none had been released. I was really working on all the getting used to talking to my computer in my empty house. Episode 52 is significant that way. This also will sort of bring to a close season five, which has focused on my leaving Boston to return to Concord temporarily at the time is what I thought. And here I am all these years later, still in Concord. Those 16 years from 1989 to 2005, to sort of the fall of 2005. And that chunk of time saw me transform from someone who wasn't sure about adulting into somebody that had been married and divorced and married again, had lost a baby, had had a couple of children, was trying to put together a life that, you know, <laughs> she, she thought she wanted. And there was a lot of growth there. I've glossed over many of the aspects, things that happened in these years. Actually, every season, I could go back to all five seasons of this podcast and look at the stories I told, listen to the episodes and come up with two or three really big giant stories to share around things that I had gone through at that time. I actually might do such an episode next time. So episode 53 won't be season six yet. It'll wrap up the end of year one. It will be on the one year anniversary, a day early of my first ever podcast, the first Tuesday in September. I'm gonna to talk today about an event in my life that occurred during this 16 year period that would play a pivotal role in lots of things that followed. And when I look at my decisions around deciding to participate, it's again, sometimes me not paying attention to my gut and, you know, it's okay to say no. And this is something I'm learning a lot. I've often had a very, very hard time saying no. When someone asks for help, I just feel compelled that I should do it. So I'm going to reiterate and retell the events that led up to me going to Washington, D.C. on a field trip, which is where I met Kenny. Now, I had known Kenny, of course, and that isn't what this episode's about, but I went on that field trip at the last minute. The principal of the elementary school I was teaching at, Clint Cogswell Walker School, knew what I was going through and said, you know what, get out of town for a few days, go on this field trip. And so I went. 
I was, you know, a last minute addition. And I rode on a bus down to Washington, D.C. with a lot of students who I didn't know all that well. But I had a really, really good time. And it was, it provided a much needed break. And I remember when I got back from these hot, muggy days in D.C. and I went running, I ran up Mount Kearsarge on the Sunday that I got back. It was like May 10th or 11th. It was rainy. I ran, I ran up the auto road with John Dowling. It was something, oh, those long running days are wonderful. I miss them. I should bring them back as best I can. But I drove to Warner and we ran up the auto road and there was still snow on the road, even though it was May. The weather differences between D.C. and Concord were, were significant, not lost on me. It was just rainy and miserable. So I digress. I have talked a lot about my job loss. I've talked a lot about Chris Rath. She was a principal at Rutland Middle School when I started teaching in the district, then moved to Concord High School principal and then became acting superintendent and then superintendent. And so she was an administrator in my life, my entire career in Concord. And someone I thought for a long time was an ally. And we'll get into that as the story goes along. But I would not have gone on this field trip if I hadn't been involved in a situation that in the school district that unfortunately for Concord appears to repeat itself again and again. It's troubling. And I think sometimes I know when I bring things up, people often roll their eyes or look away or get a look on their face like, oh, here we go again. And that's a frustrating way to feel. I've written a blog post called, oh no, here she comes. And I wrote it about my mouth and I would complain about my mouth all the time. And people thought I was faking it or that I was looking for pain medicine and I have a neurological condition. I'm feeling it now. It will never go away for me. And I know that people bring it up when I try to talk about what happened to me in Bo with that you know, very, very disturbed family and all the lies and the horrible treatment and, you know, all of that. Someday I can tell that story much more intricately and specifically as well. What happened to me that I ended up on a school bus going to Washington, D.C. in the spring of 1996. And so what happened to me is I was coaching cross countries, indoor and outdoor track at that time. I was a three season coach and I was also a very, very open and honest sort of coach. I had been coaching and teaching in the district now for six years. I was in year six, so still really relatively new. And I was just over 30. I was maybe 32 or 33. I often regaled the girls with stories of my college days and high school days and probably told far too much information than, than boundaries might indicate is appropriate. I will always own that. I would share funny stories about escapades around drinking in college and Oftentimes, I would try to frame these things around, please be careful. And when you go off to college, make sure you're safe from this or that. But I always tried to just make the stories funny, engage the girls. And I could teach, you know, I was a health educator long before I was a certified health educator. And, you know, I coached girls, young girls and young women. And it was just a time where we could talk about all the things that bothered us. I remember sitting in a circle once, stretching with a group of girls on Woodman Street, right next to Concord High. And we got talking about body hair and, you know, girls sometimes get hair in their boobs and it's horrifying when you first, you're like, what the heck? Because no one tells you about these things. We had this whole conversation around nipple hair. <laughs> you know, it was just one of those things. And is that inappropriate? I don't think so. It's, we all have bodies. We all have boobs. Things happen to our bodies. You know, knowledge is power. And if you can know what to expect from your body, then you can pay attention when something doesn't quite seem right. Years after this particular incident, I was doing a, a lesson on cancer, testicular cancer and health and actually breast cancer and how, how part of finding cancer sometimes is knowing your body and knowing how things should feel. And I had a mother say she was very angry at first that I had encouraged her son to touch himself in the shower. But that's the best place to, when you're washing yourself, to see if anything feels off or different. It's a great place for breast exams to happen. 
And lo and behold, this young man had testicular cancer and they caught it early. And, you know, it wouldn't have dawned on him to pay attention to that piece of what was going on. This is how I've always been. I just have always been very, very open about things that other people aren't. And I think some of it comes from me as a child being told to be quiet, that, you know, when somebody is molesting you, you're told not to tell anybody because it's wrong. And the fear around telling is huge. And then when you do finally tell, the reactions can be very mixed. I was very lucky. I had very, very positive support and reactions when I told what was happening to me. At the same time, I was encouraged not to say anything. Don't share this with people. People don't understand. You know, and and some of that might have been correct. People don't understand. But how I took it at age 13, when I finally, or 14, 13, when I finally had the guts to say something, is that not only did I have to be quiet then, I still have to be quiet. I'm never allowed to talk about it. And I also remember being coached on what to say and what not to say and, and to lie. And I remember I had this good friend for a while, Amy, she'll come back several times. She moved here to Concord after, you know, when I was teaching in the district much longer. And I remember explaining to her, we were talking about our troubling childhoods. And, and I told her about how I was told to lie, you know, lie to this one, lie to this one. And that overcoming the the panic-stricken feeling that I should lie, regardless of whether I needed to or not, was one of the hardest parts of therapy. And she then turned that around to say that I admitted I was a compulsive liar. And when you share yourself with somebody and they take what you've said and twist it and manipulate it, it's incredibly demoralizing. And it can make you shaky a little bit. Modern day technology would call that gaslighting, but I didn't really understand it at the time. So back to 1996 and my being a coach. So I'm coaching cross-country indoor and outdoor track. And in the fall of that year, so it would have been 1995, I had a girl come to me who was worried about her friend who she thought was involved with a teacher. And, you know, so I sort of asked some tentative questions. What do you mean involved? Well, I think they kiss and I know they spend time together and he's always driving her home and, and I'm just worried. It just feels weird. And I had had a very similar thing happen to me in high school. I was very involved with a teacher at a very young age. And, at, you know, when you're that young and you go through these things, you don't really realize the magnitude of what's happening to you because you believe what the adults tell you. So I shared at that time with this girl, well, you know, that happened to me in high school. I fell head over heels in love with a teacher and I didn't tell anybody. And I tried to manage it myself, you know, and he still teaches here. And I think he's had several girlfriends. And these are things I said to this girl. I said, please encourage her to go to her parents or come to me and talk to me. I'm happy to talk to her. And so she did. So, so this particular story about me and this teacher was relatively well known. It was one of those things that you know, sometimes things just aren't kept secret very well. While I was in high school, this teacher had a huge reputation of, you know, don't be alone in a room with him and that sort of thing. And he also was a pretty active alcoholic. And so I think he often drank before school and after school and often was very red in the face. And the sad piece is he was an unbelievably brilliant, smart person who was very tender and very damaged by life and had been an amazing runner. And if it weren't for falling in love with him, I never would have gone out for track. Again, I'm going to save those details for It's very own episode. But, you know, when your first real romantic experience is with an adult who's a teacher who shouldn't be (laughs) saying or doing any of the things he's saying to you or doing to you, you know, you start off right away in a piece of your life that is is a meaningful, important part of your life, who you sleep with or make love to or fall in love with, you know, that's your whole life. You know, these are things that you either fall in love with one person forever or you have several relationships. At any rate, it was a very, very you know, sort of traumatic way to start <laughs> my romantic life. So I, share, I shared some of these things with this young lady. And so about a week later, the girl involved did in fact come and say, uh, you know, I heard 
so-and-so came and let me share what's going on. And, and so I just, I told her my whole story. I left nothing out for her. And about, you know, how I just felt so powerless. And, and then when it ended, you know, and he wouldn't talk to me, I didn't know what to do. It was just really just very, very traumatic. And actually this gentleman and I, my, my <laughs> teacher friend, we maintained contact all through my college years. I got to give him a name. I don't know what to call him. I'll call him Science Guy. So Science Guy and I, you know, we maintained a, a friendship and a relationship as normal as it could be throughout my high school life and college. I shared all this. So now, so I graduated high school in 1981 and this is 1996. So it's 15 years later. So I just, I tell the girl, I implore you to go to your parents or to some trusted adult and get some support and help around this. Not only shouldn't this be happening, but you know, you need to have some protection. You need to feel safe and you need to enjoy high school. You can't ever come back and redo high school. Some time went by, I didn't hear anything. You know, that was in the fall, sort of cross country indoor. So I lost track a little bit. I didn't really know what was going on. And I th think what she tried to do was sort of manage it. But the rumors went around and I would ask, how is she doing? Is anything better in what's going on? That sort of thing. So gets to be spring. I would say, you know, April, I'm coaching spring track. Life is busy. And or maybe I'm not coaching outdoor track at that time. I might've not been, but you know, I was teaching at Walker School and still involved with uh, the runners. And I get a call from Chris Rath and it's April vacation week or just before. So it's, it's April. And she says, would you please come in? I need to talk to you. It's important. It's imperative you come in. So of course I'm afraid because <laughs> when you live the kind of life I've lived, you're always afraid. You're always assuming right away, what did I do? What did I do? I made a mistake. I did something wrong. And so a couple of people involved in the situation got in touch with me and said, it's probably about so-and-so in, in her relationship with her teacher. So I went and I was anxious and nervous. And I remember I was wearing a blue and white Nike jacket and I was wearing navy blue running pants and brand new Nikes. And I was very nervous just sitting there. And the high school was still under construction. The new part of the building was still being built. And so it, things were, hadn't opened yet. So I'm in her sort of temporary office and we're sitting and she comes in and she sure enough brings this up. And I said, well, I'm really glad this girl went to her father and this and that. And then she said, that's not why we're here. Why we're here is you told a story to this girl and the father came and shared the story with me and I need to know, is it true? What I had shared with her was everything, that the name of the teacher, what had happened with us, how I felt about it and how troubling it was for me. I remember sitting and really like, it's like a lock tumbler sort of clicking in your head as you're trying to process the information, take in what's going on. And how I felt was that I needed to protect this young lady, not knowing the full wrath of Chris Rath at that time. There was a lot more to what she was up to at that time than just this one particular teacher. She had no patience for anything that she didn't deem correct. <laughs> and there were some things that she let go that definitely aren't correct. If she deemed it was okay, then it was okay. If she deemed it wasn't, it wasn't. So I'm sitting there thinking, I, you know, she hired me, you know, six years ago and I'm new enough in the district. So I sat for a minute, you know, and she tried to reassure me, you know, it's okay and you're safe here and all that, that sort of things. And so I took a big breath and I said, yes, everything that she said is correct. So I went through it. I said, I'm not willing to, I'm not going to be the reason that he goes. I'm not. I coached with him and worked with him. If it weren't for him, I wouldn't even be a runner. I don't care that you don't understand all this. This is my personal story. And I live here now and I teach and coach here. So I said, but I, I do know of several other people that he was with. And so I gave her a list of names, like eight names. One of the other people on the list was currently a teacher at the high school at that time. She said, no, I can't, I don't want to take part in this. You know, lucky her that, that she had the wherewithal to say no. 
she could step away from it, but I, I couldn't. You know, I was involved in sharing my story with this young lady and, you know, she wanted to enjoy her senior year and she had met a boy that she liked. And how do you date a boy when you have this man that you had something with or might have something with and, you know, they're in a position of power and all that goes around consenting to, you know, that sexual behavior with somebody that's not only 15 or 20 years older than you, but also a teacher. All of this was just racing through my mind at the time. And so I did say, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to be public about this and I don't want science guy to know that I've admitted to any of this. <laughs> it's not my story to show. I don't, I don't want to do that. And she was fine with it. She said, because of the nature of it, names likely wouldn't be mentioned anyway. So several of the people she did, you know, she did phone call. She was able, now again, there's no internet here. You couldn't just Google somebody's name. The internet was brand new. Let me rephrase it. Emails were just starting. All of this was brand new, but there was no search engine where you could type in somebody's name and come up with 50 examples of that person and where they might be. And there was no white pages online or, you know, find me apps or anything like that. So I remember a few days went by, we met two or three times and I remember the conversations. One girl's name who I gave, she got that girl's mother and the mother said, no, it wasn't with science guy. It was with this other teacher. And it was just tumultuous. And, you know, she ended up following him and they had this two-year relationship that was so unhealthy and, you know, it really, really decimated her and she had to really outgrow it. So that was a different teacher that got away with that behavior. I remember when my sister Johanna was a senior in high school, there was a teacher that was actively pursuing her and she didn't know what to do about it. It really, really, really freaked her out. I think my father found some sort of note or something from him or something happened and he, I believe, called the teacher and said, you do it again, you're in big trouble. And Johanna was no longer bothered. You know, I can see if you graduate college and you're 23 and you're teaching high school English and you have a 19-year-old senior or an 18-year-old senior, you know, it's a five-year difference. Either way, older male, younger female, older female, younger male, you can see where those lines could be tricky. But when you've been a teacher for 15 or 20 years, you have children that could be the same age as the children you're teaching. There's just nothing appropriate about those relationships. As this was going along, I asked, how is the girl doing? And she said, well, the father's very angry with me. And I said, why? She said, because I haven't fired you or given you a punishment. And I looked at her and I'm like, what have I done wrong? And her response was that I inappropriately shared what had happened to me. Well, if I had not inappropriately shared what had happened to me, she would likely not have gone to her parents. The only reason she came to talk to me about it was that I had inappropriately shared what had happened to me. When people say, why do you say so much? Or why are you so open? Or why do you just blurt things out? I just think that if somebody's telling you to temper what you say or to be quiet, all the more reason to say whatever it is you're going to say. The main reason people want you to be quiet or want to make you look bad is to protect themselves. I don't know what this father was perhaps protecting. I think he was protecting his daughter, but I'm not the monster here. And I remember saying to Chris Rath, so if I were a bank teller, I wouldn't lose my bank teller job because I inappropriately told a story to a girl that saved her from potentially dangerous behavior. But I'm an educator. I work with children. And so I'm held to a much different, we all are as teachers, held to a much higher level, a much higher standard of appropriate behavior around children. Do I regret telling this girl that story? I do not. I don't. Perhaps I could have told it to her differently. Perhaps I could have, instead of having her go to her parents, I could have gone to a staff member. If that were happening today, I would immediately go to a staff member. I would not own this journey myself with a young lady. I got very upset about that. And I said, well, that's ridiculous that you're punishing a victim. You know, I was 15 when that happened to me. 
I'm 30 now. I'm 33 now. It doesn't mean that I was 33 then. So I remember in that process of, of her, so there were several teachers. It was the teacher science guy. And then it was the teacher of all this young lady. We'll call him English guy. And then there were a couple of other teachers, I believe all of them from the English department. I don't remember though. But there was a female and another male and their transgressions were never clearly brought out. But I do know years later that sometimes when an administrator doesn't like you, they can set things up and work very hard to find ways to eliminate you from teaching. And I think that that was the case here. I'd have to really go back and research. But I do know that one of the teachers that, that ended up resigning really was a wonderful teacher and probably never should have been asked to resign. She was accused of some sort of inappropriate communication with a student. Well, you know, in this day and age, 90% of the conversations I've had with athletes wouldn't be allowed because they'd be too close. You know, we're not supposed to speak about history accurately and you can't cross a boundary and be too close with anybody because, you know, that's inappropriate. You know, we live in very, very funky times where over the line and behind the line can be very vague sometimes. So in the process of the teachers being let go and all the newspaper coverage and all of this, I was asked to go and sit in front of the school board at that time. So then superintendent was Kurt Softness. And there was a whole, you know, all nine people. And I'm sitting at a table and it was at the old SAU building. And so I'm sitting there and they're all, I'm sitting there in a little table facing all of them in their horseshoe shaped, you know, table where the school board meetings were held and where they all sat. And I'm horrified. I'm a new educator. I still feel like the child sometimes and not the teacher. You know, I'm young enough that a lot of the, the people that are teaching there and administrating there were there when I, was, when I was in school. One of the board members was my fifth grade math teacher. And she was probably the hardest one to take at this time because she was neighbors with Science Guy. And she just refused to believe that he would do these things. She felt that she knew him and that I must be making it up. And so I had to say, yes, this happened to me. I'll be more specific about what happened to me with him when I tell the actual story. But basically, you know, I'm talking about my first ever experience with a guy to a school board and I have to tell it. And I didn't really see a way out at that time. I find that appalling now, but I did it because I felt like this is what, you know, victims need to stop being afraid of speaking up. We need to show our side, share our strength. And, you know, when people get beat up and they have a big black eye and all this, maybe they're ashamed about getting beaten, but we don't have this social construct around, they must have asked for it, you know, oh, you had a V-neck shirt on, that's why you get the crap beat out of you or whatever. And this particular board member that had been my teacher drilled me on, you know, what exactly happened. And I'm just sitting there like, I'm not going to give you detail. <laughs> like, what are you asking me? And fortunately, some of the other board members were a bit more sympathetic and perhaps empathetic. The conversation was kiboshed. But I basically had to justify sharing that story with a youngster. And I just looked at them and said, the youngster was going through the very same thing 15 years later. Clearly, our district has some work to do. <laughs> Not knowing that, you know, 25 years later, we'd be going through it again in a much more public avenue. So I shared it all. And I justified it by saying, you know, should I have kept quiet if I had never told the story? I'm not sure that little girl would have told anybody. The whole reason the conversation came up between her and her friend was because of my funny story. The then superintendent, Kurt Sockness, the greatest guy ever, was very understanding, really, really understood that it took a lot of courage for me to say what I said and do what I did and that, that he thanked me and that he apologized that it even came to this. And that he didn't quite understand why Principal Rath at that time would put me in front of the school board 
and have me share something like that. And he thought that was very inappropriate. You know, he had daughters and he just didn't feel that that, that was okay. But I did it. I went through that process and, the, and the, all those teachers left. In the process of the teachers, you know, all going, science guy didn't take long for him to figure out that I had been involved in that. And I started getting harassed. So I had somebody drive by my house and throw a rock at the window. I had people, I was out running once and a car swerved really close to me and yelled out science guy's name. It was really, really scary. So I got an attorney and I went and applied for a restraining order. My first restraining order, restraining orders will be a theme (laughs) in my story as well. I've had some interesting experiences there. So I went, I got my friend, Meg, who I've talked about, Megan's dad was an attorney and he went with me. And I went to her for a restraining order hearing. And I remember a science guy started talking in this thick sort of Scottish accent and he wore a kilt and it was just very, very bizarre. And the judge and he sort of talked back and forth about heritage. And I thought, oh no, I'm, I'm just in a man's world here. This is terrible. And so science guy argued that this was a domestic violence stalking petition and this wasn't domestic violence, except that it isn't like walking down the street violence. It's not random crime. It, it involved a relationship. And I think that's what the word domestic means in this case. You know, they heard both sides and I explained what I did and why I did it. Science guy just denied, denied, denied everything. I was granted the restraining order and I actually wonder where this letter is. So I got a card in the mail from him, from science guy. And he just sort of apologized. I don't, I don't understand. He talked about how great it was to watch me become this amazing runner because if it weren't for him, I never would have joined track. And that he wished me well in all of this. It was just, it was just such a gray, troubling, like I'm supposed to hate him, right? You know, when you, if you look at some versions of sexual assault or rape, then this person was my rapist. Yet it wasn't a violent, forced, violently forced situation. It was a very, very unhealthy situation and relationship that painted the color of my whole entire high school experience. Good and bad, I started running. Look what running has done for me. You know, always in my life, the good has been tangled up with the bad. It happens to me a lot. And this was no different. I'm telling this story right now because it was sort of sandwiched between my experience in high school and coming to teach in the district I grew up in and being forced out of the district by Chris Rath and really her using the very same tactics on me that she used on some of these people. I didn't abuse any children. I did nothing. <laughs> I got involved with a bad family is what I did. I made, some, I made some big mistakes, which I'll admit to and talk about in that season. But it was a significant choice for me. I did not feel that I had the, the ability to say no. So when you look at sexual assault, consent comes to play all the time. Was the sex consensual? And I taught this lesson in health over and over again. And I always, I always called consent the vagina as a kitchen. <laughs> I always tried to make it funny, but I wanted the kids to listen and understand. And I wanted them to have a story that they could think about without going, you know, and being all, getting all weird and, and that sort of thing. So I've said before that saying no is difficult for me. And I think it's because I wasn't allowed to say anything about a lot of things for a long time. And when you've been abused and made to feel really, really powerless, when you have felt like there's no fixing it, there's nothing you can do but wait for it to stop. That's a horrible way to feel. And helplessness and powerlessness is terrible in any situation. And it was bad here. It was bad as a child for me. And it was bad, you know, I've had other experiences in my life where saying no doesn't even come to mind. Months or years later, I'll look back and think, if I had just said no, you know, if I had just said no. So I own it all. I continually own the bad things that have happened to me. And there are people in the world 
that will take those weaknesses and use them against you in horrible ways. It's another way that sometimes this kind of abuse can stay with you forever. So all those teachers leave. In the process of this restraining order, I went back to Concord High School several times to talk to Chris Rath. And in her mind, it was just done. She wasn't bothered by it. Like, you're here again? What now? So I thought that he had you know, been terminated. No, he was allowed to write a letter of resignation, which as was I, which means he had a settlement. He probably got paid the rest of the school year. And so I found out through the grapevine, you know, there were people, people that helped him. I remember the owner of the school that I worked at gave him a job, you know, weeks after he left the district because he needed money, you know, totally believed, just believed him. Okay, sure. Come work here. You know, okay, but how about you pay attention to what's going on and ask the right questions? He left the area, science guy did, and moved back to his home state. And I found out through other people that knew him, other people that thought that what happened to him was terrible, that that must not be true. And somebody was making it up. And I just stayed quiet. I didn't let everyone know I'm, I'm the one because I didn't want to be blamed for, be blamed for him having to leave the district. And I found out that he was teaching at a private girl's school in his home state. And I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that I had, I've, I had to humiliate myself in front of a school board. I was accused of being inappropriate myself. I have a restraining order. As unhealthy as science guys in my relationship was, he was still an important part of my life. Like that's how ambiguous and parallel some of these things are and how difficult they are sometimes to sort out. And all for nothing. Okay, he's not your problem anymore, but he's somebody else's and he's going to do the same thing with somebody else. And so I was livid. I was incredibly angry. And I didn't understand how somebody with a, you know, could get a job. So private schools don't require a teaching certificate and they don't do back then. They, I think now is different. Background checks weren't quite as big. And so he somehow got hired in this position. And so I, I was angry, angry. You know, I've had to get a restraining order. I've lost sleep. I've had somebody try to hit me with their car. I've had somebody throw rocks at me. I've had a school board member say all of it was my fault at age 15, you know. And now you're fine with finishing your day's work just because he's somebody else's problem. I was, I was really, really angry, just really angry. I do remember her calling the Department of Ed. I think he had lost his teaching certificate here. And I believe that I gave her the name of the school and I believe that the Department of Ed called the school to explain why he had been terminated. I can't imagine there wasn't a confidentiality thing, but if you've lost a teaching certificate, they can say why without going into detail. So I do know that he didn't keep that job. He didn't maintain that job. And he, you know, lived, I don't, I don't even know if he's still alive. <laughs> you know, he was 18 years older than me. So he's in his mid seventies now, later into his seventies. So I don't know, but I just do remember that the overriding feeling I had from that whole experience was I was this like sacrificial lamb for this highfalutin principal who had a mission. And once her mission was accomplished, none of those that helped her mattered. It was a hard way to feel. And years later, when I lost my job and listened to the vile things that she said to me, I remember sitting there just thinking, oh my gosh, I, I helped you. I helped you. It was a really hard way to feel. So why am I sharing this story now on this episode? Well, as I said, when I started, every chunk, every season of this podcast that I've done the past year, glosses over or chronicles a period of my life and what was happening during that time, the Jack and the Molly and being a mom and trauma and all of those things. It's been, it's been wonderful. It's been such an amazing sort of journey and experience to do this. It's brought up a lot for me. I also find that I definitely have a life that goes around and around and around. Here we are again. I'm taking a grief course with David Kessler in one of the movies. This was all about, you know, coping with death, but he brought up the movie Groundhog Day and how Bill Murray kept waking up in his Groundhog Day again. And 
there was a character and there a homeless man that kept dying and Bill Murray kept doing these different things to try to save this man. And, you know, it was sort of like, sometimes no matter what you do, the man will still die. And that wasn't the reason he had to keep living the day, but he thought it was because he, he figured this was what he had been failing at or something. So in the telling of my life story and in trying to generate an audience and connect to people that are, that are going through things that they don't dare talk about or, or don't feel brave enough to talk about or haven't given permission to talk about, I find these connections and this, this is a big connection. I was new in the district and wanted to help and jumped at the chance to help because I wanted to fit in. I wanted her to like me and I wanted to be considered a valuable part of the, of the district. And I was, I was still a valuable part of the district. Even if I had said, this is personal business, I declined to talk to you about it, which I would have had every right to do. I think never dawned on me to get a union rep. When you have conversations with, you know, administrators, you're allowed a union rep. I didn't have a union rep in all the events. I lost my job. I could have just said, stop talking. I want a union rep and, and just not listen to him. I didn't do any of those things. Again, it's that place I go when things get tricky, where the way I protect myself is, is to stay perfectly still, just stay still, just stay still, do nothing, do nothing. And it repeats itself again and again. And so as I was concluding this season, going through all the, my first years in the district and, and all the people and the things that were important to me and connected with me, this came up in my mind because a number of things would represent themselves in my life, restraining orders and how subjective restraining orders are and why they don't work and why judges sometimes I think just throw their hands up and how frustrating they can be. That's one piece. We have all of the implications around Roe versus Wade and how, how we're blinded into thinking it's really about saving the lives of babies when while that might be a big part of it, a better way to save the lives of babies is to promote birth control and make it accessible, to teach sex education, to give women the power and the right to say no and be in charge of their own bodies provide healthcare that supports those things for men to get vasectomies and women to get their tubes tied if they want. I mean, my goodness, there are so many ways to prevent a pregnancy and, and those things receive little to no funding and equal, equal abolition as abortion does. So I think this story illustrates so much of what still goes on and what will likely go on until humanity can really truly figure out the equality of women and men and that it isn't making us the same. It's taking each of us, men, women, in all of the ways that humanity presents itself, transgendered, non-binary, whatever, whatever your identification is, you're a human being. And until we can all stand on equal footing, these things are going to happen. And always, always, I think in terms of sexual assault and rape, the burden is on the victim to prove these things and in a way that it isn't in so many other crimes. So that's why I tell the story now. It's a bridge between two parts of my life and it's a group of people that come back into my life again. Chris Rath plays a major role in many events in my life following this. And I didn't know at the time that that would happen. The issue of Concord High School teachers and middle, relevant middle school teachers being inappropriate with students has come back again and again. You know, you would think it wouldn't, but it did. And Chris Rath's involvement in that is speculative and, you know, very well hidden. Girls and women and the fact that in allegedly the freest country in the world, more than half of the country bans abortion, something like abortion, which aside from the birth control pro-lifers will tell you it's used for very, very serious health conditions and issues around fetal health and the health of the mother and the life of these two beings comes into play again and again. And all of those fly out the window at this random idea that, that every single fetus has the exact same amount of rights as every single person that's already been born. 
you know, I don't know that rights is even the right word to use when you look at the specifics of it. I know when my baby Gordy, I induced labor with a with an alive baby in my belly who was never going to live once he was born. And he didn't even survive the contractions. That was a very, very difficult choice for me, but it was the right choice. And many wonderful things have happened because of that choice. This story and the fact that even the women involved in listening to my side of it were doubtful and speculative. You know, no one sat him down and asked him to go through it. <laughs> the more things change, the more they stay the same, I guess. I know I'm sort of stumbling here. My next season will be my high school and college years. So that's like a, you know, a nine, 10 year period of life, high school, college, and a little bit after. A lot of the events that led up to this particular meeting on this particular day in May were set in motion here in this upcoming season. It'll be fun to talk about high school. I have some great high school memories in college. And that's when I really became a runner. It's when I first learned to love my body. It's when I first saw that I had value or felt that I had value. And it's funny that something like running would give me value when so many other things are valuable. All of these things funnel through my life. So a thousand tiny steps, you know, a thousand tiny steps to what it was the beginning and the end of Molly involves so many things in my life. What everything truly is connected. I remember when I was first thinking about the podcast, I thought of calling it the butterfly effect. I think there's a couple out there called that already. You know, a butterfly flaps its wings in Tokyo and there's a monsoon in Oklahoma. All these little things that have nothing to do with a dead 13-year-old girl were pieces of the, of the path, a step in the stairway that led to the day that we pulled that plug on her. It's amazing to me how things are connected and what I'm learning about myself and what I'm learning about those around me. So I'm going to end on a funny note, and it's kind of funny, kind of not. So my, my good friend, Virginia, who co-wrote, ghost-wrote my memoir about Molly, is going to be teaching for a year in England. She's the wellness director at a private school. So her job encompasses 90 million things. <laughs> but part of it is just, you know, health education and wellness for students, and that involves sex education. And so, you know, <laughs> people are very different in how comfortable they are or willing they are to talk about things and, and all of that. So... Another piece of, of life right now, this came to be a big factor in the whole Concord High School, recent Concord High School situation with Howie Leung, is claiming that because a victim was 18 that they could legally consent. But the law is very clear that consent can also be taken away when the person who's forcing himself on you or suggesting that you get together is in a position of power over you. So a boss, you know, sexual harassment or a professor or a, somebody that just has power over you that could you know, ministers and priests, people that, that are in a position of power over the person that they are seducing or enticing. And so consent has always been a big thing. There was that sexual abuse case at St. Paul's School years ago, the young girl, Chessie Prout, who wrote a book, and she talked about getting in, involved with a senior and feeling okay about it and then changing her mind and not feeling okay about it and then realizing she'd really been taken advantage of. And everyone has opinions on, on who's bad and who isn't bad. And, you know, it's just a tricky thing. And I remember in teaching consent in health class. I would often say, you know, if you steal a Twinkie from Cumberland Farms and you steal a Twinkie from the mobile station, it's a Twinkie that you've stolen. The crime is identical, but you know, you force yourself on a woman that works as a prostitute and you force yourself on a woman who works as a nun. And even though the crime is the same, the physical act is the same, rape, rape, the victim and the nature of the victim, what story you're in, so to speak, matters. It changes the crime. And it's because it's because the crime is is about sex, right? And so was I ever beaten up or hurt by this person? No, but made to think something that isn't okay is. And I talk about ice cream, like how delicious ice cream is, unless someone tied you to a chair and shoved a half a gallon of ice cream down your throat all at once and up your nose 
and in your eyes and now you have brain freeze and a headache and you don't want to eat any more ice cream. Now ice cream is a horrible thing. So that was my sort of example for sex, that sex is the ice cream. And when you get to decide how you eat it and what you put on it and how fast you eat it and when you take breaks, ice cream is delicious. But if someone else takes those choices away from you and now you're forced to eat this ice cream, it's not the same. So my consent lesson, and this is my little health lesson of the of the day and try to end on a lighter note, is I did this lesson called the vagina is a kitchen. And the reason I call the vagina a kitchen is because whenever you go to a party, everyone congregates in the kitchen. The favorite room of the house is a kitchen. When people are doing over kitchens, they always want a couch in the kitchen or a sofa or a sitting area. People just gravitate there. Here we all are in the kitchen. I used to have a Christmas party here every year for my family and everybody would be in the kitchen. <laughs> the only people in the living room sitting were the older people that didn't want to stand. We'd all just congregate around the food or in the pantry or just whatever. So I would have my students close their eyes and I would say, okay, we're going to go through consent and we're going to do an absolutely clear sexual assault. We're going to do an ambiguous sexual assault and we're going to do absolute consent. What I do is I have them picture themselves in a kitchen if they're a girl and if they're a boy or a male outside the kitchen. And I do it this way because the vast majority of violent sexual assault or most sexual assault in general is man against women. And not always. Let me preface by saying I would preface it this way as well. If in your mind you see it the other way, then ladies, you can stand on the porch and look in as well. The scene that you're going to see, I'll describe as the same. So, so this will be sexual assault. You're on the porch and you look in, you smell these, this delicious smell and you go up on a porch and you look in the window and there's this, the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. And the reason she's beautiful, she's making your favorite cookies and you can't take your eyes off those cookies. Oh my God, I have to have the cookies. So you watch the woman and she puts the cookies in the oven and she stands there and she wafts, you know, and she gets the cooling rack out and she looks over at the window and she sees you and she immediately gets angry and closes the curtains. So then you get mad because you want to see the cookies. And so you go to the window at the door and you look in again, you pound on the door. So she gets a bit scared and she locks the door and backs away from, from the door and there's no curtain on that there. So you demand, let me in, let me in, I want the cookies. And they're cooling on the stove now. And she refuses, no, you cannot come in, you cannot have these cookies, go away, go away. So you look around on the porch and you pick up a brick and you throw it through the glass in the door and you unlock the door and you go in there and you shove her out of your way and you fill your mouth with cookies. You eat all the cookies. Then I have them open their eyes. And I'm like, so did she want to give those cookies to him? No. How do you know she didn't want to give the cookies to him? Well, she closed the window and she locked the door and she said no, and she looked afraid and she tried to protect the cookies. And, and so did he force himself and take the cookies? Yes, okay. There you have a very clear cut and dry sexual assault. There was never consent given to have any of the cookies. There was never anything ambiguous about her response to his actions. So I said, all right, windows repaired, erase, 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 go back on the porch, we're starting again. So this one would be like a date rape, one that isn't necessarily as cut and dry as the first scenario. So. You're on the porch and you look in and there's this, oh my gosh, this woman's in there and she's making cookies. And actually it could be anyone in there making cookies. If you're gay, it could be the gender you're attracted to. Matters not, but there's a person in there making the cookies. And I would always have the students pick their favorite flavor and you can smell the cookies and you can see how the chocolate chips are melty and the macadamia nuts are next to the chocolate chips and oh, the smell is delicious. And so you knock on the window and so she smiles at you. Come on in, come on in. Well, she doesn't invite you in right away. She doesn't close the curtains and, and she just keeps going about her business. And so you go to the door and you look in that window and you knock and she waves at you again. And so she comes over and invites you in. Hey, hello, come on in. I'm making cookies. So you, you can't wait. You're so excited. Now you're in the same room as the cookies. 
So she invites you to sit at the table or he invites you to sit at the table and you have some conversation and you keep wandering over to the cookies and she keeps drawing your attention back to her. And you say to her, gee, I'm very, very hungry. I would love some cookies. And she goes, I'd be happy to give you some cookies. So she gets up and she gets a plate and she gets a glass and she pours some water in it. You might need some water to wash down the cookies. And she walks over toward the stove, but she walks right by the cookies on the stove. And she goes to the cupboard and she gets a package of boxed, you know, chocolate chip cookies or maybe Oreos or something from the cupboard and puts them in front of you. Here you go. And you look down and that's not the cookie you want at all. She's let you smell the cookies. She's invited you into the room where the cookies are. You've talked about how beautiful the cookies look and how yummy they'll taste. You've told her that you want the cookies. She said she'd love to give you cookies. And she brings you these packaged, stale, poor examples of the cookie. And this gets you pretty upset. So you shove the cookies aside and you walk over to the stove and you pick up a cookie. And she's not saying no, but she's incredibly upset and angry. And she begins to cry. And you eat the cookie anyway. Okay, everybody, open your eyes. Did he deserve to eat the cookie? Yes or no? How could somebody argue that he had the right to take the cookie? Well, when it's a cookie, no one can argue that. You know, it's a cookie. And she didn't say yes, take the cookie. She brought him a different cookie. So I would make an analogy that, you know, okay, so she, the kissing occurred. She came in. Maybe that's the kissing. And looking at the cookies. All right, maybe she unbuttoned her blouse. And, you know, being offered, I'd love to give you the cookies. You know, but, but what you thought were the cookies was maybe not. And it, and it, and it was all just going to stop right there. No, no, no. You don't get those cookies. Those cookies are for a bake sale. You get these cookies. This was always a good conversation because cookies, pros and cons to whether or not he should have been able to have the cookies or not. Should she have let him in? What should she have done differently if she didn't want to give him the cookies? Because it was cookies in a kitchen, it's very easy to just talk about without all the sexual judgment, judgments coming. So I make them close their eyes again. And this always freaked them out a little. I'm like, all right, now we're going to do consensual sex. And so there you are on the porch and you look in and there are the cookies and you see them and you smell them. And I go through all of that again. I was very, I took my time. She invites you to sit down at the table. Oh my God, I love the cookies. I know, aren't they beautiful? Would you like one? I would love to give you a cookie. This time she pours a glass of milk. You know, you have a table. She puts the, the whole plate of cookies right in between you two. Picks one up and puts it in her mouth and leans over so you can bite the other side. They're like, all right, everyone. <laughs> and we'd laugh and laugh and laugh. And they'd say, I'll never look at cookies again. But at the end of that lesson, there really was no doubt which cookies were okay to take and which ones weren't. And really the only scenario in which, in which the cookie was okay to be taken was the last one where she offers it to him with her mouth. We talked a lot about the middle scenario and how, what could she have done differently? What could he have done differently? He could have made it very clear that he was coming in for those cookies, giving her a better chance to say, no, those cookies aren't available. Being led on does not give one permission to lose their temper and attack somebody, but you know, sexual energy being what it is. And, and we bring into every experience we have our own experiences. And so I find that people that commit sexual assaults come from really troubled lives themselves. Why am I sharing this story with you? Because when I look at that situation, the situation with me and Science Guy, and then the situation of me thinking that it was my duty to, to share it, not saying no to sitting in front of a school board, like how ambiguous so much of my story is, that part of my story. And how ambiguous this high school girls that came to me was and how, what a better step she had into a healthy outcome than I did. And just the 15 years that had passed made that big of a difference. I find in my life that I am better now. I'm older and I care less about what people think, advocating and standing up for myself, but not always. There are people that can, that can decimate me into silence and 
reduce me to a puddle of nothing. And that's a horrible way to, to feel. And I'm working every day to fix that. This story, this part of my life is one of a million like this. Well, maybe not a million, but you know, where I have an extreme thing happen to me. Another episode I'll do sometime and maybe I'll, maybe next week's episode will be this. Oh yeah, that happened to me once. I've had a lot of things happen to me. I've said this before. My Virginia's editor said, if you presented Barb as a fictional character, she's unbelievable because not one person could have gone through all she's gone through. And that's true sometimes. My enemies, I have a former good friend. She says I'm a drama creator. I would disagree with that completely, but I find myself in the midst of it often. So something about the drama draws me and brings me in. That's my story. That's my, yeah, that happened to me once story. That's what a school district had a teacher do to defend sharing a story of, a, of basically an assault with another young lady that was potentially going through the same thing. These are things we shouldn't be afraid to talk about. These are things that we shouldn't be ashamed to talk about. I know some of you listening, maybe this made you uncomfortable. Good for me. Sometimes life is supposed to be uncomfortable and it's okay. One thing I love about podcasts is when they get weird for me or uncomfortable or irritating, I turn it off. I've never not gone back and finished a podcast though. It's a wonderful way to learn and grow and experience things in a really private way. If you don't like it, you can turn it off or stop watching, whatever it is, stop listening. That's my story. Yeah, that happened to me once, number one. So I'm gonna end here. To all of you out there that have ever, ever been involved in a relationship that was not quite right or an abusive relationship or have ever been the victim of a sexual assault or any kind of child abuse that would mimic that type of thing, I got you and I get it and I understand how life encompassing it is. You know, there are those who would say, you know, it's been, you know, 52 years since the first time that happened to you. You're not over it yet? Nope, not over it yet. Because certain things you don't get over. You just learn to learn to utilize them in your life and to grow from them and to try to become a better person and maybe prevent it from happening again. I haven't quite figured out how to not repeat, <laughs> repeat things in my life and I get drawn to these people. But I think by telling the stories that I'll get better. Next episode will be a fun one where I'll, sh I'll share more stories like this. And then next season will be a high school and, and college years. After that, I think I'll probably do my young, young life, what it was like being asthmatic without asthma medicines and all those kinds of things. Because so many of those things still play a significant role in my life. And then I'll finally get to the place where I can talk about 2005 until Molly's death, 2016, 11 years. That's a pretty significant chunk of time. And when I think of how much of Molly's life it entails 11 over 13 years, I get teary. I just want her to have a happy life and I want her to still be alive. And I look at those 11 years and all that went on. Anyway, the shirt I'm wearing, one of my favorite pictures of her, her last time at track camp, she wore it. She used to like to wear my stuff. So anyway, it's my Molly shirt. So episode 52 has been recorded <laughs> and you'll get to listen to it in a couple of weeks. I'm recording it right now. It's August, it's August 19th. You'll hear it the last week of August. So not quite September. So August is winding down. As I said, August is the Sunday of summer. I wrote about that. I saw a Facebook post, Skylar Howard, yours. And she goes, this is how this year has been. And it was like January. And it was like all two or three of each letter. February, two or three of each letter. March, two or three of each letter. Then April, May, June, July, all like one word, all stuck together. And then August, capital letters. And oh my gosh, she nailed it. That's exactly right. This will be the last episode in August. And then next episode will be my one year anniversary episode. So, hey, if you want me to tell a story, if you've known me forever and always, and there's a story that you'd love me to hear me tell, please, 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 please reach out. Also, I really, I really want more feedback. I know that 
when I listen to podcasts, they often say, you know, go on and give us a recommendation or rate us. I would appreciate all of that. I go on and look, and I know I have a lot of listeners. The downloads are I'm almost to 10,000, but I don't always know if people like it or not. And I would love some more feedback. I mean, I get feedback, you know, casually just through normal conversation with people I talk about, but I would love a comment or a recommend on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, whatever avenue you use to listen to podcasts. I would love it. I also, in looking at future episodes, would love to start having guests. So if you'd like to come onto my podcast, if you think you have a story to share, I would love to start that process. I haven't, I don't have a formal way of doing it yet, but I will soon. But I'm going to be a guest on a couple of podcasts and that will be very exciting. I'm scheduling a time to go and meet those wonderful women, Jen and Christine, who do shenanigans, shenanigans. So those are things that are coming up, but I really would appreciate any sort of feedback. And finally, I would love to start having show sponsors where I can start to, you know, I've spent some good money making the podcast and developing websites and putting together the Molly B Foundation. And I would love to be able to start earning some money and bringing some money back in. All of this, the book, the publication of the book, this podcast, my blog site, whatever else I might do on social media to generate, increase the numbers of people who listen to what I have to say. All of it is to somehow make sense of Molly's death and to bring meaning and value to her life and her memory and to you know, honor her mission, which was to make people happy. <laughs> so I welcome any and all suggestions. And if you're a local business and you would like a mention on my podcast, a lot of people listen. I live in Concord, New Hampshire, so local would be in New England, I guess. If you're a CrossFit gym, I'm a pretty good CrossFit athlete. I could mention your people in your gym and what you do. I'd be happy to. I would love to start or end my podcasts by promoting other businesses that do good things for people. That would be amazing. So I ran for Nike. Okay, all you Nike people listening, give me a big old Nike shirt. <laughs> I'll wear it and promote my former shoe company. Anyway, any suggestions like that and any support would be great. And I'm going to be working on these things myself. So as always, thank you for listening. I really do truly appreciate it. Do something good for yourself before you do something good for someone else. But both of those things are important. Enjoy the last remaining days of summer. Hopefully September will provide us with some nice hot sunny days. I love those warm September days. They make me happy now. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444 on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.